There we go. Hey, listeners, this is William Sterling, and you're listening to the Killer Mediums podcast, where we talk about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is ambiguity in horror, and we are joined by guest Paul Tremblay. As a warning, this is a very, very, very spoiler-heavy podcast, so if you want to avoid spoilers for any of today's topics, especially A Head Full of Ghosts, Cabin at the End of the World, Knock at the Cabin, The Pallbearers Club, or Take Shelter, then turn back now. With all that said, though, here we go. Let's get spooky. Foreigners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard it ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Paul, how are you doing tonight? Great, William. Thank you. I'm doing well. Yeah, it was a nice day here. <laughs> and I'm Good. coming from my son's room, if you're watching out there. <laughs> yes. I love it. We were, we were talking about the basketball goal a second ago. Yeah. And, um, hoping we don't have any like host moments where that attic behind you drops down. and the God, I hope over. not. That's terrifying. <laughs> I know. My poor son had to sleep in this room. I, there's no way I would sleep with the attic drop hole string thing in my room. Growing up, I had a little like half cubby going into the this unfinished closet off of my room. So I, I understand your son's potential terror. Oh, man. <laughs> half cubby now. Yeah. Could I get a new house? <laughs> <laughs> so our big topic today is ambiguity and horror, which you are absolutely the master of. But before <laughs> we dive too deep into that, I like starting these episodes, just giving our guests a chance to kind of pitch themselves to our listeners for anybody that isn't familiar with you, isn't familiar with your work, kind of, who are you? What's your what's your niche in the horror community, I guess? <laughs> so, well, I'm Paul Tremblay, mainly a novelist, though I have some short story collections as well. With you know, I, I've written other things too, but uh, my novel, Head Full of Ghosts, is sort of what broke me, which came out in 2015. After that was a novel called The Cabin at the End of the World, which is going to be a movie uh, called Knock at the Cabin. Uh, directed by M. Night Shyamalan, and that'll be uh, coming out February 3rd uh, of 2023, this February. Geez, only like two or three months away, right? Wow. Uh, most recently, uh, my novel, The Pallbearers Club, which is <laughs> a strange mix of memoir, humor, and, and horror. Hopefully that works. <laughs> yeah. I, I am very much in the camp that it works. So. All right. <laughs> <laughs> With all of that in mind, if our topic is ambiguity and horror, all of your works kind of play around in this field. Just starting with the topic super generally, though, ambiguity and uncertainty kind of goes hand in hand with this genre, it feels like. Yeah, to me, I mean, I think, I mean, anyone living at any point in history, I'm sure felt like their existence, <laughs> felt like it was ambiguous in some sort of way. But I feel like that has been heightened, you know, in the 21st century, obviously, with the advent of you know, or just the, the growth of the internet and the advent of, advent of social media. It's like all our lives have been split into, you know, real flesh, not to sound Cronenberg, uh, David Cronenbergian, <laughs> you know, the flesh life and the, and the virtual life. And it's, you know, and it's definitely sort of bifurcates your head. Um, it does mine anyway. So I don't know, like a lot of my stories, I, you know, I want to root them in the now and I want them sort of to feel like or mirror what it, it feels like, you know, now and, you know, living through, you know, this misinformation age, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, that's sort of my, I guess, my abiding interest or my somewhat obsession with it. 
Um, And we can talk more, but, you know, really it's like, you know, our memory, our identity and and reality itself, I think are a lot more ambiguous or maybe if not ambiguous, they're a lot more blurry, you know, than we like to think in our day-to-day lives. Yeah. And I think that comes through a lot in the pallbearers club. So as we kind of work through, work through your titles a little bit, Mm -hmm. uh, we'll, we'll hit on a bunch of these different avenues of kind of how different like social medias are playing with that perception of who we are and then building up to the the pallbearers club which kind of does away with all of the media aspect of things and it's just art barbara's (laughs) journal himself and even that is a little bit convoluted with what's what's real and what's not real and what his perception of things are like you you play around with that so much it's so fun yeah well, thanks. So I'm, uh, you know, sort of occurring to me now, though, even like with the Paul Bears Club, while there's no obviously like internet media necessarily encroaching, but I think, you know, pop culture is certainly, you know, a thing that makes things a little bit messier you know, in that book, you know, just given that art is obsessed with who she could do and like everything is named after punk songs. And, you know, he even mentions towards, you know, when he's older, he does like a YouTube channel. So like, like how much of his life he devotes to sort of like this pop cultural thing, you know, pop, pop, uh, punk music or indie music, you know, it's still like such a large thing. Is that really his identity or is that just like what he wants to be? You know, I think that's sort of like a little bit of an underground water thing to the book. Yeah. He's kind of wearing this mask of like the, the face he wants to show to the world versus right. who he is in the journal. I can see that. Okay. Before we got before we dive too deep into the Paul Bearers Club, though, because yeah. this is good, I want to come back to this thread. But with me, one of the big things in horror is I I feel like there's really two ways that you can scare somebody in a horror book, in a horror movie, in a horror what have you. You can do the very in your face horror where you know what's going on and it's gruesome to look at or it's scary to look at or it's very it's very tangible horror. Or you can do the ambiguous stuff where you're not certain what's going on there. It, it kind of preys on your fears of the unknown. With most of the horror media that that I'm familiar with, at least, it feels like when directors or writers or anybody plays in ambiguity, it's usually towards the front half of the book or the front half of the movie when you're not certain right. what the monster is yet. And then a lot of the directors, a lot of the writers that that I've seen, and it feels like they they like to tie things up in neat little packages by the end. The ambiguity gets stripped away a little bit in favor of closure for the characters, for the storylines, for everything else. And something that really strikes me about your novels is your ambiguity sticks with your storylines and with your characters straight through the end. You still manage to give us these very nice conclusions to your novels, but they don't usually come at the cost of that uncertainty. What is the balance there for you for finding your endings? I think is the question yeah. I'm trying to come to here. Uh, how, do you, how do you find these neat conclusions and keep the mystery still up? Well, you know, first, thank you. Uh, that's very kind. And um, yeah, that's interesting. I think, you know, when you talked about, you know, and it's a very good observation at the beginning of a lot of horror stories, it's ambiguous for the first half, you know, and then like there's the monster reveal or something like that. Or So, I mean, on that level, I think the ambiguity is, the ambiguity is being used as a hook, almost, you know, uh, as a mystery sort of set up to things, right? You know, there's a mystery that has to be solved, but eventually it's solved, you know, and this is just, you know, one type of horror story. I don't know. When I got interested in it, like, first, uh, if I'm going to use ambiguity, I really try to make sure it's not there for like a cheap Twilight Zone sort of twist. It has to be 
thematically important to the story. It has to almost in some ways be the story or, or at least what makes the story terrifying. And with a head full of ghosts, what I sort of hit on, which I thought was, was kind of fun and, you know, and hopefully interesting to other people was that typically you think, you know, of ambiguity of withholding information from the reader or the viewer with a head full of ghosts is like, okay, you know, I'm not going to tell the reader if, if Marjorie is possessed or something is supernatural happening. But I'm not actually withholding any. I never felt like I was withholding information. I felt like I gave the reader too much information. I gave them everything. It was just sort of this data glut where, you know, you had, you know, basically if you thought of building it or if I thought of building like sort of like, you know, the the scales of justice. If I was trying to build the scales of ambiguity, like there was the non-supernatural side and the supernatural side. And they were they were evenly weighted. You know, and some of the information you got from one side contradicted what you got on the other side, et cetera. And again, partially because to me that that feels like what we're, we've been thrown into, like how our brains have to deal with just this, you know, almost ceaseless flood of information that we get every day. And so, like, I think the, the maddening and hopefully scary part <laughs> and, and dread inducing part is that, you know, hey, the real answer is in there, in that sort of just infinite field of data. But we just don't know where to, to, to we don't know how to get to it. Um, or, I mean, maybe even more frightening, there is no real or there is no right answer. You know, so those are the kind of things or the ways I try to approach it, I guess. But, you know, ultimately it does depend on the story, though. You know, I'm certainly not above doing a story where it'd be, oh, like, you know, I'm treating it like a mystery element. And then, you know, maybe there is a reveal. But that's sort of the approach I took, I think, certainly with a head full of ghosts in the cabin at the end of the world. Maybe to, a, you know, I, I would say, you know, maybe with the Paul Bears Club, too. But I think that one's less ambiguous. <laughs> I don't know. I <laughs> trust my opinion on that one. So I've listened to a couple of interviews with you on talking scared and terrifying tomes of terror. And I think it, in at least one of those interviews, you talked a little bit about like, do you know what the right ending right. was? Is there in your mind, is there a, what was really going on in head full of ghosts cabinet cabin at the end of the world? <clears throat> Which novels did you approach with a concept of here's what's going on, the, right. the, the characters just aren't sure of it, versus which of those novels were you kind of writing it out yourself also? Yeah. So it, it sort of depends on the book, I, I would say. But like, you know, with A Head Full of Ghosts, you know, I think when I initially started the book, like before even writing page one, like I was like, oh, I'm going to do like a secular skeptic, you know, possession story. But very early on, I realized, okay, no, I'm going to play it not straight, but I'm going to play it like, so I don't tell you, like, I'm going to have to build both sides equally. And once I made that decision, I totally divorced myself from ever thinking, oh, there is like a right reading of the book. And honestly, by the time I was done, like, that's not even something I consider, honestly, because to me, what's, I think, you know, the most scary part about a head full of ghosts is that we don't know and we'll never know. I mean, I think that's, I hope for the people that, you know, sort of enjoy that book, I think, that's sort of the realization that, that, you know, that the, the reader comes to is like, Oh, like that's, what's the scary part is that we just don't know. Right. And we're not going to know, you know, and I think in, in some ways, you know, anytime you mess around with the ambiguity, I think it either subconsciously or maybe directly sort of picks at like the ultimate question at the end of our lives. Right. You know, we may believe what's going to happen when we die, but you know, we really don't know. And I think horror is always even always picks at that in, in some way, you know, whether or not it's an ambiguous or or not an ambiguous story. Now with Cabin at the End of the World, 
I tried, I mean, I did start off sort of trying the same mindset of, and I still, I felt like I, I created the both sides, both sides being, is there a supernatural event happening towards the end or not? But again, a, a similar thing happened where, oh, the story, a head full of ghosts to me became not whether or not the world is ending. The story became about the choice. What choice was Andrew and Eric going to make? You know, were they going to choose to give in to sort of like a fear, you know, the, the fear of the unknown or the fear of what might could happen, you know, and and do a pretty terrible thing because of that fear? Or were they going to, you know, to to choose, you know, to, to make a choice that wasn't based in fear, maybe a choice that was based in love or hope or something like that. Yeah. So I, you know, it's a little bit different. I think in a head full of ghosts, I think it's fun to think, oh, is she possessed or is somebody possessed or is nobody possessed? You know, but with Cabin, like, like I'm so not interested in, it, in if the, the apocalypse is happening or not, which might sound weird. Because to me, like part of my hope of the book was the, the whole idea was, Every time, you know, this is 2016 when I wrote it, 2016, 2015 into, no, 2016 into 2017. Like the idea of like, you know, I hope the book would mirror all the anxieties that we felt at that time and building up to that time. And like how every time we turned on the television or looked at our phone, it felt like the world was ending. You know, it, you know obviously that's ramped up, you know, partly because they're cloistered into this cabin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, anything, everything that happens like on the television that, that the family sees could have been anything that you saw on CNN. In fact, two, like three of the four were things I've seen on television. You know, maybe the only one that was, was, was heightened up because towards the end of the book, I really wanted to ramp it up was the, you know, the airplanes falling out of the sky right. kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I will say though, so like when I initially wrote the book, I didn't have, uh, I didn't think one way or the other, if the apocalypse was happening or not, but I feel like, geez, it came out in 2018. I feel like four years later, I've been I've been reader bullied into having an opinion <laughs> uh, as to whether the uh, an apocalypse is happening or not. But um, I don't know. I, like I'll fight to the death for the ending of that book that I wrote. Like I mean, it's not a. Per I don't think it's a perfect book. If I were to rewrite the book today, you know, there would be things I would change, but the ending would not be one of the things I would change. Okay, with that in mind, and. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to throw out the script a little bit here. We'll, we'll start bouncing all over the place instead of typically on the show. What we try to do is we try to go one, one work at a time. Yeah. So talk about one book, then talk about the next book, but we're, we're kind of hitting everything all at once here. So let's just, let's just do it. Sure. Stop me when we get into <laughs> non-disclosure agreements yeah, yeah. and everything else. That is, is something that really struck me about your work getting paired with M. Night Shyamalan as a director. Your works have these big ambiguous endings. And like you're saying with Cabinet at the End of the Woods, like defend that ending, mm -hmm. uh, especially in your own head. <laughs> Whereas M. Night Shyamalan tends to have these very concrete endings that you, you get a lot of stuff explained at the very end and it's very twisted. It's not the stuff you were expecting. He, he's known for these big twist endings. So I think that was kind of my first thought when I heard he, or that was my second thought when I heard yeah. he was adapting Cabin at the End of the Wood was first thought, holy shit, this is awesome. <laughs> second thought, what is going to happen with that ending? Yeah. So I don't want you to talk about the ending because sure. I feel like that would pull every punch out of everything. But just from a conversing with M. Night Shyamalan standpoint, getting trust 
learning to trust him and his vision for this story. When you were talking to him, was there anything that he was saying to you that really helped him click with you? Like, okay, he gets this story. He knows, he knows what I was going for with this story. And was there anything he said to you kind of in the pitch meeting that, that felt like he got it? Yeah. So I guess first I would say upfront that like, you know, there was never like a pitch meeting for him, like specifically, you know, so really briefly the the book got optioned by film nation in early 2017 is that true yeah that's true <laughs> uh no not early twenty. uh like fall of 2017 sorry because then the book came out like six months later so like for the first like year or two of that like development you know they had a couple of young screenwriters writing the screenplay <clears throat> i think their screenplay made the blacklist or something you know which is like a you know a big deal yeah. <laughs> in screenwriter land and there was a, excuse me, another director that was attached initially, you know, and I had a good relationship with them. And in fact, you know, they were, I think they were angling to put more of the book and more of my sort of vision back into the screenplay, <laughs> but like their schedule really wasn't going to work out. Um, and then it was like the summer of 2019, the director had mentioned, oh, I had a call with M. Night Shyamalan because they thought he might be interested as a producer or something. And his vision of what was happening was a, a lot different was all that person said to me, but then it didn't work out. And then we, you know, I kept hearing, Oh, I'm not sort of maybe interested, maybe producing, maybe directing. And then, you know, like what happens in Hollywood is just time just sort of ticks by, you know, the pandemic happened obviously, but then it became, Oh no, he wants to do this movie after he does old. You know, so we had to wait for that to happen. All right. So let me fast forward. Like, I, I guess the point was like, there was no, like I, I never had a say as to like, Oh yeah, this person gets to make the movie or this person doesn't. I mean, Unless you're Stephen King uh, or I don't know, another writer, like equally or, or near as uh, popular, or unless you have like an amazing agent or lawyer to, to, to negotiate that kind of thing into your contract. But again, it was 2017. It was very much an unknown, even with a head full of ghosts, mostly an unknown quantity. <clears throat> was I quantity or quality? I don't know. <laughs> but so that's a long ramble just to say, yeah, I, I had no, I have no say like in anything that happens in the movie. There's nothing to do with me other than that I wrote the book. <laughs> However, okay. I did take a, you know, my first phone call off night was in November of 2021. Oh, and it was a really nice phone call. He, he was, you know, very complimentary about the book and, you know, talked about how much, it, you know, it, you know, it spoke to him. I, he was, he was similar, similarly and really drawn to the idea of having to make this choice. I think from a different angle though than mine. Okay. would be the only thing I say. I think, you know, it's, it's hinted at on the posters. If you see it, you know, the yeah. posters have like the tagline, you know, will you choose your family or, or to save humanity kind of thing. Right. So that's a choice, you know, and he was up front with me with what he was going to change. Yeah. So ultimately I think, you know, the first half or so of the movie is going to be very much like the book and the last act will be, you know, something, something different is going to happen. Yeah. So okay. people have read the book or, you know, you know, there are still surprises to be had. Fantastic. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure <laughs> once the movie comes out, I'll feel comfortable like comparing the endings and talking about it, but yeah, yeah. yeah it wouldn't be, fair. It wouldn't be fair if I did that before then. Yeah. No, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> no. Yeah. But uh, I, I guess kind of the next thing in this line of the questioning, and then we'll, we'll get off the movie and we'll come sure. back to your books. You got to do a set visit, right? Yes. Very cool. Yeah, it was very cool. There are some really big names attached to this from an from an acting perspective. 
what was it like seeing other people give their interpretations of your characters? Yeah. I mean, that was a, uh, it was really wild, interesting experience, obviously an, under, an understatement. I mean, when I first got there, it was like, it, you know, so it was uh, this big production warehouse just outside of Philadelphia or on the outskirts of Philadelphia. You know, it was like a warehouse. They built a, a cabin for the interior shots and the inside of this big warehouse. So that was kind of wild. You know, when I got there, our producers walked me in and they were like, you know, getting ready for a scene. And they were, you know, Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge, the two dads, tie, you know, fake tied to chairs. There's, uh, <laughs> you know, here's David Batista and there's Nikki Amuka Bird and, you know, the actress playing when and, and there's M. Night. So I was, you know, it was very strange. You know, it's funny. I emailed... Uh, it's going to be a, a brag, but I don't care. I'm going to do it. You know, I, so I emailed Stephen King to be like, Hey, you know how you, you know, just looking for tidbits and tips, like how you deal with the adaptation thing and, you know, some of the anxieties with it. And, you know, and he mentioned that like there were times where it felt like the filmmaker was like inside his head, like, and that's what, you know, and, and took out what he saw. And that, that definitely was not my experience. Okay. Yeah, not That's not to say it was a negative experience. It's just, you know, that book is just so vividly imagined in my head and it's still there. I spent, you know, 15 months with that book and yeah. with the characters as who they were, you know, and I didn't imagine David Batista. I didn't imagine any of those <laughs> other actors. Right. Right. But that's not like, I still like, there were times where I got chills hearing some of the lines that I wrote and, you know, and seeing Redmond's death in the dailies was, it was really yeah. fucking amazing. <laughs> that was really cool. So yeah, it was, it was a neat experience. I don't know. I was, you know, someone who wrote like a head full of ghosts, which is talking about all these references to film, you know, I, I'd be a hypocrite if I'd say like, Oh, like I'm not interested in someone else taking like the story idea that I had and, you know, yeah. and doing something different with it. No, I'm fascinated by influence and, and retelling other stories. I mean, that's half the fun of horror, right? We're always sort of using some of the same cycle of tropes and retelling them in interesting ways to make them different stories. So. Yeah, there, there's no new ideas in Hollywood. There's just old ideas packaged differently or something <laughs> like that's the same, yeah. right? Reboots and requels galore. Right. Okay, so let's come back to Head Full of Ghosts then. Start start with the, the earliest work that we want to dive into and then kind of build build through the catalog. Mm -hmm. So with Head Full of Ghosts, I feel like you took a very big swing with just how many different filters you put on the story, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. You've got Mary all grown up telling this story, the blogger recounting things in their blog. You've got the reality TV footage that built in, and you've also got the people from the reality TV crew saying what they saw outside of the footage. It's just there are a lot of perspectives coming together to try to tell one cohesive story. How do you wrangle all of that as a storyteller? <laughs> how, how do you keep so many different perspectives straight in your head at once? Yeah. Was there some trick to that or was it just something that edit, 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 edit? So it's funny. So, I mean, it definitely was a lot of, you know, a lot of different sort of pieces of information, but like I actually, so there's these different perspectives, but really in the book it's presented as three different narrators, right? There's Adult Mary who's being interviewed by a, you know, being interviewed by a writer. And then that's the frame. And then you've got the blog intrusions, <laughs> this woman named Karen Brissett, but eventually you find out that Karen Brissett is adult Mary. And then obviously the, the main part of the story is adult Mary um, remembering what happened 15 years ago. So even though there are three different narrative voices or narrative parts, it's all from Mary. So for me, it was a little bit easier to keep track of it that way. Um, 
But I also knew like having all those different like viewpoints into the story would help work to the ultimate goal of, of, you know, of the ambiguity, uh, the thematic ambiguity throughout the book. And then there's all this question over whether or not Mary's sister is actually possessed, like we've talked about, and everybody can have their different theories. But the the closing scene of the book, <laughs> I think you talked in the show notes. I, I don't know what to call it. The the notes after the book in the version. Oh, right. Liner notes. Sure. Yeah, liner notes. Liner there notes we go. Yeah. You talked in the liner notes about the, the connection to that last scene in Head Full of Ghosts and The Thing. Oh, uh, yeah. And it's it's a very powerful moment where we think we get a little bit of closure and then there's just this little like gust of, uh, <laughs> how do you describe it? A, a gust of cold air escaping Mary's lips, which is the right. same sign that we've seen every time that the demon, uh, every time she's around there in the rest of the book and in other exorcist movies too. Right. I'm talking to Jonathan Jans about exorcism movies yeah. in a couple of weeks. I'm oh, nice. About that. Yeah, or the cafe was just really cold because the heat wasn't or the working. Cafe was right, just you could see cold. right her her or you could see her breath. Yeah. When you get a moment like that in a book, and it just kind of blow blows everything open all over again, I feel like that's very powerful, but can also be done very cheesy. We see a mm. lot of those twist endings right at the end of horror movies like i i think about final destination where it's all over and then the bus comes in right or, or other movies like that it kind of gets played as a gag what is what is the way to keep that scene feeling i'm struggling for my word here but yeah, yeah. honest instead of just <laughs> a cheap kind of like slap you one more time at the end of the book moment right yeah so i mean I guess, I mean, it's potentially a twist ending, I suppose, depending on what you believe, you know, what you decide. Right. Right. But, but I think hopefully what kept it from being cheesy and man, like, well, I stopped reading Amazon a long time ago, but it was funny. Like readings, like in the ending, it nothing happened in the ending. And I was like, I, you know, I wouldn't respond to the, to the review. It was like, you probably should reread the last paragraph or last line or two. I mean, cause the potential is there that, you know, it's one final piece of evidence that this book presents you, right? That she, uh, Mary sees her breath, but like it could mean, you know, it could mean multiple things, but we don't know. It could mean, you know, there's, there's a spirit of evil there. Like I, I love it when some people say, insist that Mary's been possessed the whole time or, or again, or the cafe is just cold or it's a, you know, sort of it's a metaphor for how affected that, how like her life has been changed and affected by you know everything that's happened to her right the trauma right. Of, of what had happened to her so i mean it could sort of mean all those things so as opposed to the other twists that you describe which only have like one possible meaning right and it's kind of like ah like <laughs> you groan because it's obvious or it's too on the nose maybe you know okay. and, you know and hopefully you know that wasn't the case <laughs> in, in the head full of ghosts no 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 jumping down my show questions would you like to I feel like we've talked about Cabin at the End of the World a little bit already. But with with Cabin at the End of the World, we don't get even that little sliver at the end. We mm. the the book in my opinion, it it goes 110 miles an hour after throwing the spoiler warning out there again. If you have any intention of reading yeah. Cabin at the End of the World or if you haven't yet, please don't listen to this right. next part. <laughs> It goes 110 miles an hour as soon as when gets got. 
mm. which as far as emotional gut punches go in a book, oh, <laughs> yeah, That's I had to put one. it down and walk away for a little while. Yeah. But we, we get that definitive moment of this horrifying thing happened. And then Andrew and Eric, I've got their names right, correct? Yes. Andrew and yep. Eric? Okay. Andrew and Eric escape from the house. I think it's Eric has this bad concussion. Um, and they're, they're going off into the woods and we just see them walking down this road at the very end. And we, we don't get a, we don't get a final breath. We don't get a final, like, Oh, one more plane falling out of the sky or anything <laughs> right. like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there is like a little bit of a description of, of, of a terrible storm, but that could just be bad yes. weather, but yeah. you're right. But the last line isn't the same as, you know, the, the last sort of paragraphs are about themselves. Like how do they go on? You know, they just decide to go on kind of thing. Yeah, how how do you decide which book gets which kind of an ending? Which which ones get the little hint at something more ending versus which of them get the we're going to walk off into the storm together and whatever happens happens. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like the ending eventually to Cabin was more planned out in my head, although I will admit when I first like wrote the first 50 pages and and pitched it and summarized it I thought that at the end I would have one of the dads kill himself, most likely, but I hadn't. Excuse me, but I hadn't committed to that. And then, honestly, after Trump got elected, it's like, man, I, I can't do it. <laughs> and, and that was also still very early in the book, too. So when I hit on what I wanted the ending to be, I was sort of all in. And I feel like that book more than the other ones <laughs> really felt like a logic game to me in terms of like how I tried to build. You know, making sure everything had a rational explanation, making sure, you know, there was a chance that maybe the invaders are right and there's an apocalypse happening kind of thing. So I don't know. In a weird way, I felt like I tried out every possible combination and, and came up with this one ending and that had to be the ending for that story. So I don't know. Every, every book's different, you know, with yeah. with a head full of ghosts. I knew I was going to, again, not answer, but I definitely rewrote the ending a couple of times. Nothing too crazy, but just in terms of like how it finally sort of ended slash resolved itself. Like how much I wasn't sure how much I wanted to get into the police report and things like that. Like there was an early draft where I probably told too much, uh, ended up cutting that back. <clears throat> but yeah, I think maybe the biggest, I mean, the biggest difference with cabin was switching to that f uh, first person plural for the last chapter of, of we, you know, which in some ways is a little bit sentimental, but I'm not sure how I would have done the ending otherwise. Maybe if I was a better writer, I could have done it without it. But I don't know. I kind of wanted the last line of that book to yeah. be what it was. So then that kind of spins us into the movie that we wanted to talk about today. Take Shelter. So I want to kind of give you the stage for a second here to, to pitch this movie to any listeners I know I've seen Twitter posts from you talking about how how much you like this movie. And in a nutshell, what is this movie and why is it important to you? Sorry, I'm just making sure I have the character names right. So I'm Googling. I'm so bad at remembering details like that. <laughs> in my head, it's Michael Shannon and Jessica Chastain. I know, Chastain, right? I keep and saying and Michael Shannon's character names, name, too, but it's but <laughs> yeah, Curtis and Samantha. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a very sort of quiet... I mean, it's a tense story, but like the tension just builds very slowly. It's just like being, you know, it's like a slowly turning, you know, it's such a cliche, but slowly turning screw, but like turning really slowly, like sundial slow through the whole movie. But anyway, Michael Shannon, you know, is a blue collar worker. He's working at I don't know, some sort of drilling fracking company. 
in the Midwest, you know, it's probably like I uh, looks like Ohio. I, actually, I mean, I'm not sure if it's Ohio. I think they say Ohio. I could be wrong. Anyway, that's the impression I got the whole time. Ohio or like a Kansas area. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why Ohio stuck in my head for that one. But uh, yeah, I mean, Kansas would make sense too because of you know the tornado shelter and tornado warnings and stuff like that. You know, he's 35 years old, and you come to find out that his mother um, had a had her psychotic break. Uh, when she was 35 and was has since sort of been living in uh, assisted living uh, with schizophrenia. And so he, you know, when the movie opens, he's having terrible nightmares that seem like so realistic and very bizarre. And these nightmares seem to portend the end of the world in some way. He, he becomes convinced. But at the same time, he sort of knows he's got this sort of failing mental health uh, issues. Um, and the movie does an amazing job with sort of the, you know, economic situation that, you know, he and his wife, his family are in, you know, his wife is played by Jessica, uh, Jessica Chastain. They have a daughter who's deaf and they want to get her cochlear implants. And the, the heartbreaking part is, you know, Shannon's character, Curtis sort of knows like what he's doing is just off the rails. Like his behavior is getting more and more bizarre. Um, and you can see these moments of recognition, but then he can't help but not commit to, you know, spending like the family's life savings on like, just like beefing up uh, his, you know, his storm, his storm shelter, his tornado shelter in the backyard kind of thing and risks his job. I guess I'm just describing the whole movie. I won't say too, <laughs> without saying too much more, I haven't really spoiled anything. I mean, most of the, so much of the pleasure is seeing, you know, the nightmares are really terrible and scary. The performances are amazing. Michael Shannon's performance is very understated until this one amazing moment when he sort of explodes. Yeah. That's just fantastic. So I don't know. It's the I wish I wish I wrote the book version of that movie. Well, so there, there's <laughs> my my good segue. In my mind, I I read Cabin at the End of the World a couple of years ago when it mm -hmm. came out, and then I watched this movie a couple of days ago just to get ready for the podcast, and the impression that struck me the entire time was this could have been Leonard's origin story. The The whole time I'm watching right. Michael Cohen go through these things, it's, he, he sees this looming apocalypse. He's doing more and more drastic things to prepare for it. And I just could not get mm. your, your character from cabin at the end of the world out of my head. Cause it was such a good progression from perfectly sensible family man to yeah. these in my mind, unspeakable acts uh, right. where he's he's taking money away from his daughter for her implants where she would be able to hear and spending them on a storm shelter out back. And he's making a lot of these, not the same decision as Cabin, in the, at, Cabin right. at the End of the World, but like similar trajectory of upending not even his life, but like everybody around him's lives in for preparation sure. for this cataclysmic event. So I really appreciated that. I I thought you and the movie both played to that sort of a sort of a character very yeah. well. Thank you. Um, That's a great observation. I think I mean in retrospect that makes total sense because I do love that movie. I think it's funny. Initially I kind of thought, "Oh, you know, a head full of ghosts is definitely in that movie because of the schizophrenia schizophrenia part of it." But, you know, the obvious thing about the apocalypse is like, "Oh yeah, for sure." Uh, you know, there's an ambiguous apocalyptic, you know, theme for, for Take Shelter. And I think that's the part that makes it so effective is that like, <laughs> whether or not like there's actually this big giant apocalypse happening, like Michael Shannon's character, Curtis, is pushing his family toward this economic apocalypse, right? So there's going to be one almost either way, you know, unless he sort of finds a way to get off 
you know, get off that train that he's on. Yeah. And it, the mental health angle of it and the not being able to trust your memory anymore angle of it works so well too. I, I interviewed Caitlin Marceau a couple of weeks ago and she's going to be the first episode this season. Mm -hmm. She has a book called, this is where we talk things out. Um, that deals a little bit with Alzheimer's and uh, the dissolving of memory and the kind of the bastardization of memory and people seeing yeah. things different ways. And I feel like that's a really fun element for ambiguous horror when you throw in that little curveball of we know that the character believes this at least, but we don't know if it's true. Right. Um, and if we're seeing everything through the lens of this character it's hard because we trust that character, but we also cannot trust that character. Right. Um, and Michael Shannon is such a great example of that. If we fast forward to the end of the movie, one of the most powerful scenes to me was when they're in the shelter after the storm potentially yes. passed, but also potentially didn't. And Jessica Chastain is making, yeah. uh, she is making Curtis make the choice to leave the shelter or not leave the shelter. She forces right. the key back into his hands after he tries to make her make the decision. Those moments of reckoning are such great character moments. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think you get that the most through ambiguous horror when you, you see these characters struggling with their own uncertainties the right. whole time along. And then like you weirdly start rooting for Curtis for his, for his visions to actually become an apocalypse. Right. I mean, it's such a, right. it's such an amazing thing about that movie is that what you end up, you know, sort of rooting for. Yeah. <laughs> and then if we want to get into the very final scene of the movie, again, throwing a secondary spoiler warning yeah. up here, cut it and go watch it and then come back. We'll wait. Right. I promise. At the very end, when he is like officially diagnosed with the schizophrenia, the doctor says, just go take one last beach vacation before right. we kind of put you away. And they go to the beach vacation. And we think like, okay, it was all in his head. And then the yellow rain starts coming down. It It's cool to me to talk about Head Full of Ghosts and then cabin at the end of the world and then take shelter back to back to back because they give us all three of the possible endings mm. for these types of movies. And in my mind, at least all three of them worked for very different reasons. So in take shelter, I guess, first question, did you like the ending? And then second question, why do you think that was the proper ending for that movie as opposed to leaving it ambiguous? Is that the way you would have done things? Yeah, it's funny. I know I love the ending um, and I've gotten more out of it each time I've seen it. I think the first time I saw it, I, you know, I was just so in it. Like I, I, I don't think I understood it fully. <laughs> I think it's taken me a few viewings to me, you know, since that I've understood it, but it's funny. Like in my memory of my first viewed it, I still thought, I thought that the ending was ambiguous. I thought that in my memory, cause maybe I wanted to push it that way. I thought that, I thought that, what if for whatever reason I didn't pick up on this, but my first viewing, I was like, oh, it's still from his point of view. It's not from, you know, the wife's point of view. It's always from his point of view. So it's still, you know, we don't know. It's in his head. But there oh. are definitely, but no, but okay. having, having rewatched it though, there are definitely shots where it's, it's from, you know, uh, Jessica Chastain. We're not calling character names. We're just going to call them the actor <laughs> names. 
you know, Jessica Chastain, it's it's definitely from her point of view to the like where one of the raindrops like lands on her hand or lands on the daughter's hand. It it is it is filmed a little bit differently than some of the nightmares because in the nightmares the, there are other people that are in those as well, but those are pretty much from the point of view of of Shannon's character. So the ending is shot differently. I still don't think it's a full apocalypse. I think the ending is so instead of ambiguous, I think the ending is completely a metaphor. It's you know, a metaphor for you know they they've come to. You know, you know, Chastain and, and Shannon have come to this understanding that, like, if she's going to be with him and if he's going to continue to be with her, they, 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 this is something that they're just going to have to deal with. <laughs> they have to deal with this. This is, you know, their future that they're that they're agreeing to dealing with. Because you know, in that ending, like Shannon's not. Neither of them are reacting in fear. They're reacting sort of in awe and almost excitement. So I think it's really representative of sort of like a shared understanding of what they're going to have to do if they're going to continue to go forward as a family kind of thing. But it's taken me multiple viewings to sort of get to that point. Sure. Kind of kind of like a, there's going to be some sort of a storm in our lives moving forward. And if it's this one as opposed to that one, then okay, let's go inside. Yeah. I mean, but he's like a walking storm for them already. So I think it's just yeah. more like, you know, using his visions to, to sort of – communicate that you know these are their they're on the edge they're going to be on the edge for their whole lives as long as they're together because obviously he has this condition that he can't control Mm -hmm. yeah it could be wrong (laughs) anything else you want to dive into with take shelter before we move to the paul bearers club oh i've been writing to the screen uh to the screenplay i've been writing to the soundtrack quite a bit recently uh it's an amazing soundtrack and it bounces back and forth between like swelling orchestral music, some very simple, almost like synthesizer xylophony piano sounds. You know, there's my expert musical opinion for you on that. <laughs> but no, it's it's been a good soundtrack to to write to. I don't always write to music, but if I need to drown out like my wife's work meeting behind me because we're you know both home, <laughs> you know I'll I'll throw in it. I can't throw I can't put on music with words. Um, to okay. write to. So maybe that's a good segue into Paul Bearers, which no, obviously no, talks do. about. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't write to Who's Could Do. Okay, so yeah. So then if we're going into Paul Bearers Club, actually, let, let me let me hold on this for one sure. more second. Do you have any other soundtracks you would like to recommend for fellow writers that need need vocalless background yeah. driving influence? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I think I wrote like three, maybe even four, well, three books, definitely. Mostly to um, 99 movie Ravenous that starred Guy Pierce and uh, a few other people. It takes place in the 1860s here in Amada Mountains. It's an amazing movie if you've never seen it. And the soundtrack is super, is super interesting, super quirky. It's some sort of minimal composer in David Nybarn. Is that his name? The dude who used to be in Blur and, and now in Gorillas. Daniel Nybarn. Yeah. So the only problem with that soundtrack, it's not on streaming anywhere anymore. Like it's not in Spotify. I don't think it's not on iTunes. I have an old beat up CD of it. It is on YouTube though. So, you know, you can listen to the soundtrack there. Nice thing about that one is like, it's just over an hour. So it's like a good chunk for me to like (laughs) fall into. So I've used that a ton. I've used the Mandy soundtrack some more recently. The French movie raw is a good one. The soundtracks of the black coat's daughter. Yes. 
it's I have like to go El- watch Elvis Perkins, movie. you know, his brother directed and wrote Blackheart's Daughter, which is an amazing movie. I, I have to go watch that one again because the first time I sat down to watch it, I did not know what I was in for. And <laughs> yeah. It is. It is very uniquely its own thing. And Definitely. it didn't land with me the first time just because I think I got so much just whiplash from trying to figure it out the whole time. Yeah. Oh, it's a great movie. I love that one. Okay. So w- with that musical segue then, <laughs> you play a lot of your musical influences into the Paul Bearers Club. So Art Barbara, not his real name. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Is is growing up in this very punk scene, uh, driven by a very musical lifestyle. One of the super fun things about this book is just the number of old school punk bands that you throw out and make reference <laughs> to. And I went on this like musical journey oh, after nice. reading Paul Barrett <laughs> Club, just keeping. I was trying to keep a list myself, and then I found out that somebody on Twitter was keeping a list for me. I don't remember who kept the list, but somebody on Twitter has this big long list of every band you reference. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, there's a bookseller, Jessie Wright. She works for Copper Dog Books in Beverly, which is my hometown and where half of the book is set. She did a a giant like four-hour Spotify playlist for the book where every band that's mentioned in song is on the Spotify playlist. So it was pretty amazing that she did that. I need to go find that. I, I had never even heard of Husker Du before that. When I thought punk, I, I'll age myself here. The first thing that jumps to my mind when I hear punk music is like Blink-182 like, yeah. and Sum 41. And that is not the Oh, you millennial. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what inspired you to include so much music in this book? What, what connected the element of vampire story and punk rock for you great question so like the first part of the book besides the title which you know sort of fell into my lap and it was like a a kid i'm on sabbatical currently but at the high school that i teach at a kid in front of a school-wide assembly you know went up and said hey i'm starting this club and described the paul bearers club as is which you know as a teacher was like oh what a nice community service thing to do you know serving elderly and homeless that don't have any living relatives. But the writer in me was like, oh my God, I have to use this. <laughs> and I almost right away, because the student who went up there was a very nice, very shy, kind of quiet kid, not one of the big, loud personalities in the school. That sort of made me, it's like, geez, it made me think about my high school experience and like, there's no way I would have done anything remotely close to, you know, as brave as that. Never mind starting a club, but like getting up in front of the whole school. So to me, that seemed like an instant conflict. I was like, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to have me do that. The teenage, you know, they have the high school and me do that. So the memoir part really sort of came first, you know, once that was there because, you know, music fandom has been such a big part of my life. You know, I, I was going <laughs> to, I was going to play with that and sort of make, you know, this is very autobiographical, but at some point, you know, I was going to have like the alternate me, you know, leave college to join punk bands. So like right off the, you know, that gave me permission to, <laughs> You know, to indulge all the music stuff. So all that stuff happened before before the the Mercy Brown vampire showed up. You know, which which is cool, which is fine. <laughs> I mean, hopefully it's you know it worked. It, hopefully it worked together in tandem. But yeah, no, I mean, music was really. It's funny, like I always watched movies, but you know, I never envisioned like, oh, I'm going to make movies someday. You know, music, I always sort of daydreamed, oh, that's me playing or me singing. 
sort of a, you know, as an adult, I'm still embarrassed to admit that sometimes I'm listening to my favorite stuff. Like that's the appeal to me. It's like, oh, imagine myself doing these songs. And I mean, I, I mess around with music before writing. Almost, but both were like really close around the same time ish. Like I started learning how to play guitar like my senior year of college. Uh, I didn't start messing around with writing until after grad school. So, you know, for the mid '90s, I was sort of messing around with both mid to late '90s, messing around with trying to write songs and writing my first terrible stories. But I eventually found out I was a better writer, unfortunately. So I stuck with that. I mean, I still play guitar and stuff, but so. So what instruments can you play? Because art's a bassist, right? Uh, no, he plays guitar, rhythm guitar. I think he rhythm describes guitar. himself. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's about it with guitar. I mean, I can I can play some bass like a guitarist. <laughs> like, you know, I used to have like an old, you know, I bought like an old beat up bass just to do some four track type recording where I, you know, I'll do a, a track of guitar, a track of bass and stuff like that. But yeah, I wouldn't. I'm definitely not a re- not even close to a real bass player. I would just say guitar at this point. Uh, I have this bad idea forming in my head of trying to get you and Josh Mallerman and a couple other musically inclined. Uh, oh no, well, he's like a legit writers to do something at an HWA meeting. Yeah, no, I, he's a legit musician. <laughs> well, I don't know if you saw like for fun and just to sort of keep the meta role going. My my son's a music production major. Cool. In okay. college. And he's in a senior year. He's amazing. Like what he can record in his laptop and in his room. He's got microphones and stuff over here. But anyway, so he and I recorded a four song EP that we threw up in Bandcamp under the name, the Paul Bearers Club. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so like the first two songs are just me and the guitar sort of as, as art describes himself when he's older, just playing like bars and open mic sort of thing. Uh, but the first two songs are songs that are described in the book. And then the third song, we did a cover of Neutral Milk Hotel's King of Carrot Flowers. And my daughter sings on that too. So, And then the last song is I just had Cole make like a movie soundtrack style song for the Paul Bearers Club. Sweet. Yeah. So it was a lot of fun. It was an excuse to make my kids hang out with me. But, you know, <laughs> as they're both like 18 and 22 now, it's harder and harder to get them to do. Yeah. I've, I've got a three... <laughs> three-year-old and a 14-month-old right now. Oh, so whoa. getting them yeah, to spend the time with it. me is not yeah. a problem at the moment. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, it's actually the opposite of the problem. But um, Two in diapers. Yeah, man. Yeah. Stuff. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and the one is trying to potty train right now. So I, I have him all over me yeah. <laughs> more often than I would like. <laughs> okay. So let's – I don't know if I've heard you talk about this question before. So okay. if you are – musically inclined you've written a couple of these songs with your kids what is the musical creative process like compared to the writing creative process and and i know you maybe don't do nearly yeah. as deep of a dive into the musical stuff as yeah, you do no. the writing but do you go to the same kind of a headspace when you're trying to play music as write or what? it's funny like maybe it seems weird but like i i'm such a terrible lyricist and like it's partly because like i don't put in the time like i do for writing like fiction you know it's like like i just get so frustrated that like lyrics don't come come to me right away like <laughs> i probably should just try to sit down for an hour or two and try to come up with lyrics but but then part of me is like you can't do that like you have to spend an hour or two in writing the books that you're contracted for yeah you know that are you're under contract so you know for for me it's it's much more like for me like playing around with my guitar is sort of the escape where i get to shut my brain off and just mess around like oh those are cool riffs and like you know i'll like 
create quote unquote songs without lyrics. And I do that all the time. I record them on my phone just for fun, just so I, I have them like, Oh, maybe someday I'll do something with them. But no, I mean that I'm a, I'm a gleeful hobbyist. Like it's kind of nice to have no pressure, you know, and just creating for the fun of it. You know, without wondering, Oh geez, who's going to listen to this or, you know, cause as much as I try not to think about readers or the audience, you know, at some point it's like, okay, what are people going to think when I read this one? Uh, I think I was like half joking to friends when I was writing the Paul Bears Club. I was like, this one's going to ruin my career, but I'm enjoying it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, I know that's a thing that a lot of writers kind of work with and struggle with is like when you get into the game, it's so fun. And then you start getting deadlines and publishers deals and you have to kind of like be a lot more intentional about it. How do you keep the love for writing alive, even when you've got these big deadlines and these big pressures mounting? Yeah. Well, for one, <laughs> oh, you didn't say fun. You said the love. Yeah. <laughs> love, yeah. Because like writing's not fun. <laughs> I'm, it, which is sort of flippant to say, but it's true. Like writing's hard. It's, it's work. Yeah. You know, and I procrastinate. I'd rather be playing guitar or watching TV or reading somebody else's book. But, you know, I'm still inexplicably driven to the keyboard and the part I'm honestly addicted to is like when I'm done with a draft for me, that's like the best feeling. It's just the feeling of, Hey, I did this and like the possibilities of what this is or what this could be for other people. And I'm just very, you know, that's the part I'm totally addicted to is having a new book or having a new story that feels really good. You know, I I've been just super lucky and fortunate to have, you know, supportive friends and mentors and, and have an amazing editor and to be in a place where they're like, you know, William Morrow and Jennifer Brell's sort of definition that they allow me of what horror is or what it could be is really sort of expansive and wide. You know, I'm not saying that necessarily in a high minded thing, but like, it's just, they have an open definition is Hey, you're supposed to write something horror, you know? And like, so here's the Paul bears club. You know, I guess it's sort of horror, you know, they're not like, you know, it has to have, this or that or kind of thing. And, you know, she's never pushed back on, you know, she didn't push back on the death of when in the cat, you know, cabin at the end of the world. And, (laughs) you know, part of it is I've always felt like, you know, these books take me so long, you know, 12 to 15 months. I've, you know, and I've always had the teaching job. It's like, well, I'm going to write what I want to write. Like (laughs) if someone's going to tell me to try to do something else, I'm not going to do it. That's not to say I won't take edits. I mean, I do. But like I'm talking more like bigger picture kind of thing. Right. Like, no, I'm making some sort of personal sacrifice here or family sacrifice on some level. You know, if I'm, I'm taking this time writing, you know, I usually try to make my writing hours, you know, at night when the kids are doing other stuff or in the morning when everyone's asleep. But, you know, stuff still happens. Anyway, I mean, it does feel like I'm giving some sort of personal sacrifice. So the book has to mean a lot to me and it has to interest me and it has to excite me. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. I'll just teach math instead. <laughs> You know, it's been nice to have that as like a, as a safety net, you know, just, you know, in terms of like the the creative aspect of it. So I don't know that, I mean, you know, the other side of it is, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm trying a year where I am just writing, you know, full-time kind of thing. And, you know, that's a different pressure. Like, you know, the only income that's coming this year is going to be from writing. And like, you know, I totally respect writers who, who do a whole bunch of stuff like a media tie-in and then they'll do their own book and then they'll do a screenplay or a comic. And, you know, to me, that's, that's incredible. And I admire it. Cause I mean, that must, I, <laughs> to me, that seems like a lot of pressure to like sustain your, yourself solely through writing. I know Chuck Wendig has talked about openly about how to him it's, 
he's always trying to push like some financial cliff two or three years down the road, as long as he can keep it two or three years away with whatever projects he's doing. And man, that sounds like a lot of stress. <laughs> Jesus, did I answer the question? I'm sorry. I get so rambly. Yeah, no, you did. Yeah. This is, this is good. But the, the, the love of writing, kind of writing projects that, that inspire you, that you're inspired by, sticking with those and, and not getting. Yeah, not getting no, just super lucky with, like I said, the editor. Like, <laughs> I'm doing copy edits for a short story collection that'll be out in July. Yes. And I'm laughing because I, was, I wasn't expecting them to want another short story collection. And so I'm really happy with it now that I've been going through it. But a, a, the largest chunk of it by far is going to be an original novella. Uh, called the beast you are and it's an anthropomorphic animal story <laughs> with Love a it. giant monster and sort of a hero dog and a, a cat that's a slasher and i wrote it in free verse <laughs> sort of inexplicably the freest of all possible verse and they were like okay sure I'm like really all right let's do it <laughs> okay i've got I've got two last questions. Yeah. Uh, and and you mentioning a short story collection totally just reminded me of a question that I meant to get to when we were still talking about a head full of ghosts. Yeah. With a head full of ghosts, you played with the ambiguity of what was happening, but you told this very cohesive story and whatever was really happening behind the scenes can be up for interpretation, but you, you knew where the characters went and what was going on with them. And then you followed that up a couple of years later by upping the ambiguity meter to a thousand with the the titular story in your short story collection growing things it was really weird to me to read that story and to recognize the characters but to have it in a completely different context than Mm. it was the first time around it felt like you had taken this story that we knew through the blog posts that we knew through Mary's recounting of everything right. and everything else and just kind of gone. And also this, or also this, mm-hmm. um, what was the inspiration behind taking those characters that, that you had told a very definitive story with and going in another direction with them? So it's funny. Uh, so the growing thing short story actually existed before a head full of ghosts did. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the characters were different names. So really all I did was change, <laughs> I forget the sister's names, but change their names to, um, you know, to, to Mary and, and Marjorie, obviously. So, yeah. So, the, I mean, I wrote that story in like 2009. And so when I was writing a head full of ghosts, you know, part of the relationship were these sisters who tell each other stories. I'm like, Oh, I kind of did that in a short story. It's like, Oh, I'm going to, have Marjorie tell Mary the story, which was like, it just, a, it like, it's my story. I can use it if I want to, but it, you know, it became like a big part of a head full of ghosts. I mean, the theme was there and it sort of foreshadowed what was going to happen to the family eventually with the poisoning and all that stuff. So it was like a perfect fit. So yeah, like uh, I was, you know, glad to be able to put that story in that collection. Uh, you know, so I did write one more, the last story in that collection. That one I purposely wrote as, not as like a, a sequel to a head full of ghosts, but it definitely happens after it's called the 13th tower. Right. Yes. Yeah. So that was fun. And in this collection that's coming out next summer called the beast. You are, we'll have two, two, uh, Mary Marjorie stories in it. Yes. <laughs> and maybe, so maybe depending on your, 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 maybe depending on, uh, I don't know your definition, it could be a third. I mean, there might be a third one. 
depending on like, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I, so I don't think I'd ever write a sequel to A Head Full of Ghosts, but I like write, occasionally I write like, you know, really short ones where it's like, you know, Marjorie's telling Mary another story or vice versa. Yeah, it, it's fun seeing that playground resurface. As a as a fan, anytime those characters pop up again, <laughs> nice. and you do that too, you have you have reoccurring characters pop up every now and then in your other stories. It, it's this fun little like heartwarming moment, like oh, there's Father uh, <laughs> Father Waverly. Yeah, right, um, Father Waverly. <laughs> yeah, in, a, in Paul Bearer's Club, right? Yeah, but okay, so that that was that question. Back to Paul Bearer's Club, though. Yeah. So. Uh, we talked about the musical aspect of it. We haven't even talked about the vampirism aspect sure. of it yet. But Mercy Brown is this real character from folklore, isn't she? Yeah. How did you come across Mercy Brown? And kind of the same question as with the musical influence here. What made Mercy the right connection for Art Barbara in this story? Uh, what kind of drove them together for you? Right. So it's funny, like... I almost feel like the other way. It's like, how did I not know about Mercy Brown having lived in New England my whole life? Like, how, how did I, I, I'm sure someone, you know, in retrospect, I think someone had, had mentioned her to me before, but I was probably half paying attention to it. And it didn't stick with me. <laughs> so yeah, when I, you know, I had the Paul Bears Club, I had art, I had the autobiog- autobiographical sort of aspect of it, but I knew I needed some sort of supernatural thing or maybe supernatural thing. So I can't remember how I stumbled across her, but it was just doing maybe like funerary research. <laughs> and I came across Mercy's story, you know, who, and it is as described in the book and it's not a spoiler um, really. Cause they talk about it openly like on page 60 where they give the story of, of the real Mercy Brown, or I should say the real, but the historical Mercy Brown who died of consumption, which is tuberculosis in 1892. And like her, her mother had died before that and her older sister and now her brother was ill with it. And everyone's like, okay, we have to save the brother, of course, not the sister or the mom. And there was this weird superstition within rural communities uh, within New England because what happened to Mercy had happened like, I guess, the most recent cows, like the, up to almost 40 times, like this exhumation had happened. But anyway, they exhumed Mercy and her sister and her mother, actually. Um, and Mercy was the most freshly dead. <laughs> and so when they cracked open her chest, her blood, her heart was still purple, like filled with blood. And so that was a sign that she was coming back at night and feeding on her brother. They never used the word vampire to describe that act. It was just more, hey, you know, her spirit is coming back and making him sicker. So the cure was to take her heart, burn it, put the ashes into water or wine and have him drink it. Because that's logical. Yeah. (laughs) Didn't cure him, (laughs) shockingly. Uh, Yeah, so in in the memoir, Art names his friend Mercy Brown. Because he says right off the bat, like, I give everybody different names kind of thing. Yeah, so, (laughs) I don't you know, in some ways, like, Art and Mercy are, are like, two different parts of me. I'm mostly Art. You know, Mercy is maybe my inner editor at times. You know, the the voice of doubt. But also sometimes, (laughs) you know, the voice that calls you on your own bullshit. That's necessary. I thought that was part of her role too, because I know Mark could, Art was purposefully getting too maudlin. Um, you know, so it was nice to have Mercy's voice come in and make a joke or cut him down a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's weird. I um, I don't necessarily do it at the start of a book, but I always like to, th- I weirdly imagine like whatever novel I'd written before, there's some connection to it. So 
obviously, you know, with a head full of ghosts, disappearance of Devil's Rock in the cabin, you know, there was this ambiguous thematic element. And then I wrote Survivor Song, and Survivor Song to me was attached to Cabin in some way because it dealt with, well, I mean, so it's not a full-blown end of the world, but sort of a, a quasi-apocalyptic scenario with a you know outbreak of a pandemic. You know, and then Survivor Song was about this really healthy friendship between, you know, Rams and Natalie. And then it's like, oh, so Paul Bear's Club is going to be about a different kind of friendship. You know, this very sort of, you know, maybe toxic friendship, you know, the kind of friendship that's so intense when you're together. But you're probably not good for each other if you're together too much. Um, yep. Although you are good to you know good for each other in some ways. And it's like the kind of friendship where it expands decades and years, and you're like, why am I still friends with this person? But you still are. So I've no, got I a name that was in like, mind right now from my friends list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I kind of thought that was like a, a fun thing, a jumping off point, or as a way to build like art and mercies, both like. <laughs> friendly and, and you know conflict filled relationship and i i loved that interplay throughout the whole story because art is telling that telling us this memoir not a novel right <laughs> um, and there are a lot of points like in head full of ghost like in uh cabin at the end of the world uh where you as the reader are kind of questioning what's going on with art like i don't know if he's really being genuine here or not and then mercy on the very next page you were lying. <laughs> that, that's not how that happened. That's yeah. not the right lens for this. That's not how that really went down. So it was really fun to have kind of a stand-in for for the reader's mentality to just like calling him out on stuff and giving yeah. us the alternate perspective. Uh, I thought that was really fun. But very final question here with Paul Bearer's Club, and then we'll start wrapping it up because I, I know we're we are past time already. But one more level of ambiguity that you added in Paul Bearer's Club that I really appreciated was not only do we have the ambiguity of what's really going on here, is Mercy really a vampire or not? Is she feeding off of art? There's that kind of running question through the whole thing. There's also this ambiguity of we don't have a cut and dry hero in this book. We don't have a cut and dry villain in this book. Who the good person is and the bad person is, is always very ambiguous also all the way up until mm -hmm. the very final kind of scenes where Art Barbara, who it feels like we're supposed to be rooting for the entire book, does this monstrous thing <laughs> to the, uh, the bully from his youth or potentially does this right. monstrous thing. And it calls into question for us, like, oh, man, do I really want to support this character anymore or not? Or do I just want to, in your mind, how do you how do you establish a morally gray character? How do you keep us invested in a morally gray character? Uh, that's a great question. What's the approach? Yeah. I mean, so like, you know, it's funny. Art felt like it's a you know, different case more so than some of the other characters, because it definitely felt like I knew I knew art was like a big empathy test for the reader. I don't know. I sort of like thinking of my books, some of my, well, it depends on the story. Like I think of Cabin as like an empathy test as well for a different reason, but I know art was going to be testing the reader's patience, you know, cause he was very maudlin and very wordy and purple prose at times. And, you know, a little bit too, you know, gothy, even though he was a punk fan, but you know, at the same time, it's like, Hey, you know, art's pretty clearly suffering from anxiety. And by the end of the book, depression, you know, and that, that's sort of the reality. The, I mean, it's hard to be around people when they're like that. You know, you, you feel powerless. You don't know how to help them. And I don't know. I kind of wanted to sort of, you know, have the reader sort of go through that with art. 
you know, so, I mean, clearly I think more people are going to want to be like on Mercy's side because she sounds like she's more fun to be around and she says <laughs> the things that people are probably thinking, you know? So I wanted to put the reader themselves on that, like, you know, where should you be, where should your allegiances lie kind of thing? You know, even though, you know, I said, you know, you mentioned art does the, you know, the monstrous thing, he does sort of pull back at the end. So I do think, uh, you know, he, you know, for, in terms of like, you know, he doesn't actually murder the bully. He sort of stops what he's doing and then sort of, you know, disappears from, from the rest of the book. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm always interested in, I mean, I think the most memorable character, well, I mean, I guess, you know, I try to, to make that book realistic, I wanted to make those two characters, you know, at least, you know, feel somewhat realistic. The, those two characters feel, you know, feel flawed, feel real. You know, and everybody's got moral gray crowds, you know, as much as we try not to. You know, it's just part of being human. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have bad thoughts, uh, do, you know, terrible things to friends and loved ones and to strangers. And it's, you know, how do, how do you go on from there? So I don't know. So yeah, I don't know if I mean, I don't know if I've answered the question because it's a, it's a hard one. It's a good one. You, you have, I kind of threw a lot of questions at the board yeah. at the same time. <laughs> no, I mean, I just think, you know, so it's like, it's, it's different than like setting up like a, a mustache twisting villain. Right. I mean, there are certain times and stories for those. Like you're not going to have empathy for every character. I mean, I'm trying like really the only character that I feel like that I've written that I had no empathy for was Redmond from it, uh, from cabinet at the end of the world. Um, and he's not on the page very long, but you know, I would never say like, you can't, every character has to be sort of, you know, this moral gray has to be like, you know, realistic. I mean, of course you can have like an awful villain, like the movie get out is a perfect example. It's a, it's a genius movie and it would not have worked if we were supposed to feel empathy for the town of white people that are stealing right. black bodies. Right. I mean, no, they're supposed to represent, you know, this white supremacist system. We're not going to have empathy for that. You know, so there's so many different ways to approach character and, and, uh, you know, and horror in general, you know, I, I guess my, I'll, I'll shorten the answer by just saying like, I try to, every story's, Different, even though I, I obviously have my obsessions and my proclivities. I try to make myself feel like, think every story is different and what would serve this story best. And and the decisions I make as a writer is are, you know, obviously I'm going to get some of them wrong or many of them wrong, but like those decisions I try to make in service of that particular story, not some sort of wider, wider view. You know, I really try to make it laser focused for the story. Are you hearing my dog bark like crazy? Sorry. <laughs> I am. It's fine. I'm actually amazed my, we haven't heard mine yet. So we're. <laughs> uh, my daughter must have just come home. So she's <laughs> Very nice. Well, on that note, I don't want to keep you from the family. So uh, th this feels like a really good point to wrap up. Do you have any last points you would like to make? Any last big pitches you want to make for our listeners? Uh, where should they find you on social media? What's coming up for you? Uh, yeah, The Beast You Are will be out yeah. Yeah, uh, July. Um, hopefully get to reveal a cover for that soon. I think like, some pre-order links are already out there online. You know, Obviously, the movie Knock at the Cabin is coming February 3rd. There's going to be a movie like edition of the, of the novel where that my publisher is going to put out in February. So if you, if your friends haven't read Cabinet in the world, they can buy like a version where, you know, the movie poster is the cover of the book kind of thing, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, I don't know. Read books, be good to each other. <laughs> I like that as a closing statement. Read books, be <laughs> good to each other. I feel like that's the message we need in the world right now. Yeah. 
Well, Paul, thank you so much for hanging out with me tonight. This was a blast. I really appreciated hearing your insights on everything. For listeners, this has been another episode of the Killer Mediums podcast. Please don't forget to like or subscribe or ambiguously click near the <laughs> streaming service of your choice. I usually have a better little spinoff for that, but ambiguous <laughs> horror, I don't know if there's... Sacrifice a loved one to the streaming service of your choice or yeah. don't. Make your choice. <laughs> Maybe there's my pitch this time. But we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, William. Coroners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Mm-hmm.